Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. If you were to describe yourself using only one phrase, what would it be? For many of us, it would take a few minutes to ponder that question and come up with an answer. The Apostle John, however, found it very natural to simply describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a wonderful phrase! What a wonderful way to describe oneself, and what a wonderful way to view yourself. Today, I want to begin a new study and a new series of podcast episodes. The title of the series is First Impressions. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first, let me remind you again of my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. The history of the United States is packed with incidents in which the Bible made a significant difference for one of our leaders or in one of our pivotal national events. You cannot take the Bible out of American history, even though many people are trying to do so. I want you to know about these stories and to share them with your children. And also, it'd be great if you would give a copy to a political leader that you know. You can find information about 100 Bible verses that made America wherever books are sold or at our website, robertjmorgan.com. Well, today I want to begin a series of messages from the little letter of 1 John. This is a small epistle near the end of the Bible. 1 John is a very simple letter, and yet it is surprisingly complex. I'll talk more about that in another time, but today I just want to begin by discussing the authorship of this book and helping us to see exactly who the Apostle John was. In my library, I have a whole wall of bookcases filled with biographies. In fact, I've had to stop buying very many of them in print form because I've run out of room. Many of these are stories of great Christian leaders throughout history. Others describe the lives of kings or presidents. Other books are about celebrities, and sometimes I run across a villain I want to read about. I have learned so much throughout my lifetime by reading about the lives of others. Somehow, I always discover something about myself when I'm reading about the life of another person. In many cases, it's almost as though some of these people are mentoring me. Well, I also have another library, a second library, that is also filled with biographies. Many of them are of great Jewish or Christian leaders. Others are kings, some are celebrities, and there are some villains in this library as well. And I never enter this library without learning something about others and about myself. My second library doesn't take up an entire wall in my house. I can hold this entire collection of books in one hand. It's my Bible, of course, and the Lord filled it with the true stories of men and women whose lives are recorded for our benefit. 
One of our favorite ways of studying the Bible is with character studies, examining the life of some individual whose name is found in God's Word. So before we plunge into the little book of 1 John, let's study the life of, of, of its author, John the disciple, John the brother of James, this John who liked to describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, note that I'm not talking about John the Baptist. There were two prominent men named John in the Gospels. John the Baptist, who was from Judea and who introduced Jesus and later was beheaded, and John the Apostle, who was from Galilee and who became our Lord's disciple and wrote five books of the New Testament. That is the Gospel of John, the three short epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. This is the man we want to study so that we can better understand why and how and where and when he wrote 1st John. In the process, we'll draw some lessons for ourselves to help us in navigating our own lives and becoming beloved disciples of Jesus. So what I'm going to endeavor to do in this episode is not to give you a sermon on the life of John, such as you would see in a book of sermons. Instead, I want to give you a glimpse of the historical John so that you can better see him in your imagination. I want to begin with a short portion of Scripture that absolutely fascinates me. It tells something that happened just after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord was arrested, the disciples fled, and Jesus was taken to the house of the most powerful and famous Jew in all of Israel, the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. Now, this is what it says in John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter and another disciple, which was John's modest way of referring to himself, were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Well, now, this paragraph is quite astonishing when you come to it in your regular reading. We have the idea that John was a simple, uneducated Galilean fisherman, and yet here we learn that he was personal friends with the most powerful man in all of Palestine among the Jews, the high priest of Israel, and with the family and friends of this man. Now, think about that. How could that be? Well, let's begin by talking about the age and the timeline of the Apostle John. How old was he at this time? We can work our ways backward. I'm convinced that John wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I think that we can make a strong case for putting it in the last decade of the first century. The American Bible Commentary says, the widely accepted date of approximately A.D. 95 placing Revelation as the last book of the New Testament, still appears to have the better support. The first evidence for this arises from the virtual unanimity of the earliest witnesses. Dr. R. H. Charles wrote, The earliest authorities are practically unanimous in assigning the book of Revelation to the last years of the Roman emperor Domitian. The preponderance of the evidence favors the date for the composition of the book of Revelation to be 
A.D. 95. We also know that John at this time was an old man who was serving as the bishop of Ephesus and the surrounding region. We don't know exactly how old he was, but it seems reasonable to assume that he was in his 80s, so let's say 85, which would have been a very advanced age in the first century. He had met Jesus of Nazareth approximately 65 years earlier in about the year A.D. 30. So that would have made John 20 years old when he began following Christ. Do you, following, do you, do you follow that reasoning? If John was about 85 in the year 95, then 65 years below and, or before in the year A.D. 30 when he met Jesus, he would have been 19 or 20 or 20 years old. For our purposes, we can round off his age to approximately being 20, which was 10 years earlier than Jesus. That helps us visualize him in scenes in the Bible. I can see this young 20-year-old, 19-year-old, maybe 21-year-old. And so this was his age at the time of his call to be a disciple. We also know his occupation. He was a fisherman, but it is more accurate to say that he was involved in his father's extensive fishing operations on the Sea of Galilee or on Lake Galilee. Now, at this point, I want to give you some archaeological information that may be interesting. It is to me, at least. Dr. David Feinsey is the Emeritus Professor of New Testament at Kentucky Christian University, and he has a fascinating book that I just have read called The Archaeology of Daily Life, Ordinary Persons in the Late Second Temple Period of Israel. This would have been the time of Christ. He reported, Dr. Feinsley reported, that the fishing industry on Lake Galilee was a huge operation. He wrote, Bone evidence comes from fish remains found both in cities like Jerusalem, Sepphoris, and Caesarea, and in towns like Engedi. Excavators have extracted from the ruins fish bones in many locations that were not near a lake or ocean. We know that one of the major Galilean export items was fish. The Sea of Galilee contained many varieties of fish edible to both Jews and Gentiles. These fish were pickled or salted and then sold all over Palestine. Many were involved in this trade, from the fishermen, who would be day laborers, to the owners of the fishing boat and the merchants who marketed the fish. He said, the cities evidently consumed a lot of fish, even though they might be miles from either the Mediterranean Sea, the Red Sea, or the Sea of Galilee. Many saltwater and freshwater fish were transported miles away from their sources. Dr. Finsley points out that excavators at Caesarea have found evidence of a fish kiosk that sold fish to the crowds at the Hippodrome, just like hot dog stands do near a ballpark today. He also reveals that excavations from Magnola have uncovered some very interesting things. Now, Magnola is a town just down the shoreline from Capernaum. It's about six miles south of Capernaum, which was the home of Peter and Andrew and James and John. It was the home of Mary Magdalene, was this town, Magnola. Like Capernaum, it was a fishing village. And when I first started leading tours to Israel many years ago, we didn't really know where Magnola was. It hadn't been excavated. But now the ruins have been uncovered, and they are fabulous. The Greek name of this town, literally translated, is 
place of processing fish. Dr. Finesley wrote, Historians universally agree that the small city lived from the fish industry, both catching fish and preparing them for shipment to the far reaches of Palestine and beyond. Not only do we have the literary references to the pickled fish from the Sea of Galilee, but we also have in the Magnola ruins two indicators of the importance of fishing. Numerous lead weights for holding nets in the water and installations probably used in the salting process. It is possible, he said, that excavators have also discovered some of the fish vats where the fish were pickled or salted, as well as possible aquaria where the fish were kept live until ready to be killed and processed. The pickled fish were well known in antiquity. Fish bones from the Sea of Galilee turn up even in faraway places like the Tanay village of Engedi on the south end of the Dead Sea. Well, let me go to another source now. In an article by Jerome Murphy O'Connor in the journal Bible Review, we read, The quantity of fresh fish available did not meet the demand in the first century. This inevitably pushed up the price. Our sources complained bitterly about how expensive fresh fish was. High prices often put fresh fish out of the reach of the poor. The poor could only afford dried and salted fish, which was the basic food of the lower classes in the cities, being slaves and peasants and soldiers on the field. He says the gospel, the four gospels, clearly convey the importance of fish in the diet of a first-century Palestinian Jew. Tellingly, the gospels never mention meat. I hadn't really realized that before until I read it. The Gospels never mention meat, but they mention fish over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked, Which man of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? The disciples who followed Jesus into the desert carried bread and fish. The reference is, of course, to the Lord's multiplying of the fish or to the dried or salted fish, which was broiled to make it palatable. The article in the Bible Review goes on to say, We have a surprisingly good picture of the scale of Simon Peter and Andrew's fishing operation. They worked in partnership with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who had employees. The impression that they were men of substance who control their own lives is confirmed by the quality of their house at Capernaum. Known as the House of Peter since the 4th century, it is larger than most of the other houses excavated in Capernaum. But that's not all, said the article. Given the average size of families at the time, it seems very likely that more of the family must have been involved in the fishing business on the Sea of Galilee than just Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and that family income would have been proportionally greater than that of the two men working alone. Against this background of a relatively well-off family, it becomes possible to understand how Simon, Peter, and Andrew— were financially able to drop their work and become first disciples of John the Baptist and then disciples of Jesus. Well, there are two passages about the fishing business, one from a book on archaeology and the other from an article in the Bible Review. And I want to suggest that all of this helps explain the strange passage in John 18, which talks about how John the Apostle at the age then of maybe 22, 
would have been well known to the most powerful man in the most exclusive residential in Jerusalem. Why would a young fisherman from Galilee be acquainted with the most famous and most powerful man in Israel? Well, there is only one theory that really makes sense to us, and that is that John was a young, outgoing, friendly, intelligent sales representative for his family's fishing business who arranged for the delivery of fish to the rich and famous of Jerusalem and to the Jerusalem markets. When Jesus was arrested, John, though he was young, knew the employees at the residence of Caiaphas because he was their fishmonger. He'd even met Caiaphas and probably offered him some fish. Well, why is this important? It speaks to John's personality and intelligence and standing and simply helps us to visualize him a little bit better and to feel like we know him better. He was at home in both Galilee and Jerusalem. He was entrepreneurial. He must have had a very outgoing personality, and he was a successful businessman at even an early age, serving as his family's fish representative in Jerusalem and selling fish to the rich and powerful and supplying the Jerusalem markets with fish. This was the young man the Lord recruited to be among his first disciples. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little bit further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands, and they followed him. Now, this was not out of the blue. These young men had already been caught up in the revival that was taking place under John the Baptist. We know that from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. The Lord had been preparing them for this very moment. You know, it's a wonderful feeling, isn't it, to sense the Lord saying to you, come and follow me. Just this past week, I was at a meeting and listened while a Marine named Brandon Blair gave his testimony. He said that when he saw the Twin Towers collapse on September 11, 2001, watching on television, he decided on that day to join the Marine Corps and go to war. He graduated from Paris Island and joined the infantry. As he was boarding the bus at the airport that would take him to his military flight overseas, he said an old fellow with a cane was leaning against the bus and offering Gideon New Testaments to the boys. Brandon took one and put it in his left breast pocket, and there it stayed. He was a machine gunner in a mobile assault platoon, which meant that he worked outside the wire in Iraq, outside the base, and it was very dangerous. One day, Brandon was shot in the chest by an enemy sniper, and as he lay there in the street outside of Fallujah, Iraq, he begged God to spare his life. They took him to the hospital on the base in Fallujah, and there he had never felt so much personal suffering. He had never felt so sinful, so ashamed of how he had lived, and so much sorrow. There was no one to comfort him, but he remembered that little New Testament. And he said that he reached over to his camis and pulled out that little book. And as he read it, he heard Jesus say, as it were, come and follow me. Brandon ended his testimony to us by saying, I'm thankful for the U.S. Marine Corps because 
Well, they gave me a purple heart, but I'm most thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ because he gave me a brand new heart. That's the way Jesus operates. He says to each one of us at a pivotal moment in our lives, come and follow me. John did that immediately. This young entrepreneurial Galilean, it seems that, well, he came immediately and he brought with him his deep emotions. John was a man of very significant emotion. Jesus gave a nickname to him and to his brothers. He called them the sons of thunder. On one occasion, John asked Jesus to call down fire on a village that had rejected them. On another occasion, he and his brother James wanted to sit with Jesus on the throne when the kingdom appeared. John was, well, he was ambitious, and he was a man of deep convictions and passions, but he also was a man who matured quickly. John and Peter and James became the inner circle of the disciples who joined the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. There were other times when only these three were with Jesus at a very poignant moments, and John sat next to the Lord at the Last Supper, and he stood close enough to the cross for Jesus to entrust his mother to him. And he reached the empty tomb before any other disciple, and he was the first to believe in the resurrection. He wrote more about love than the other three Gospels combined. John shows up with Peter in some of the early stories in the book of Acts, and then he disappears from the narrative portions of the New Testament. What happened to him? Well, we know from early evidence that at some point the Apostle John ended up in the city of Ephesus, where he became the head or the bishop of the churches of this area. This is the church that Paul established, and you can read about that in the book of Acts chapter 19. The cities around Ephesus had also been evangelized during this time, and so there was a community of churches in this area. They were very important. This was a central, uh, pivotal area for Christianity. Well, after Peter and Paul were both killed in Rome, John apparently took over as the leader or the bishop of the church of Ephesus and the surrounding towns. We know this from very early patristic sources. The word patristic is related to the idea of being a patriarch or a father. And so when we talk about patristic sources, we're talking about early church fathers, including those who immediately followed the apostles in the chronology of the early church. For example, Justin Martyr was born about the time John would have died. So it was a very close timeline there. He referred to John as one of the apostles of Christ, an eyewitness of Jesus who lived in the city of Ephesus. We also know a lot about one of John's disciples. I mean, one of the men outside of the New Testament whom John knew and discipled. His name was Polycarp. I did a podcast episode about him last year, so you may want to go back and give that a listen. The short version is that Polycarp was born shortly after Peter and Paul were executed in Rome, probably about the time that John was taking over in Ephesus. As a young man, Polycarp heard the apostle John listen to his sermons and sat under his teaching, and he was converted to Christ, and he was mentored through the ministries of those who, like John, were eyewitnesses of our Lord and were still alive. We have a very interesting description of Polycarp's ministry from an eyewitness named Arrhenius who wrote to a friend saying, 
when I was a boy, I saw you in Lower Asia with Polycarp. I recall the events of that time more clearly than those of recent years. I am able to describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat as he preached and taught, his comings and his goings, the character of his life, his physical appearance, his speeches to the multitudes, and the accounts which he gave of his interactions with the Apostle John and with others who had seen the Lord. Irenaeus went on to say, I also recall when he remembered their words and what he heard from them concerning the Lord, concerning his miracles and his teachings. What Polycarp received then from eyewitnesses of the word of life, he related in his entirety in harmony with the scriptures by the mercy of God. I listened to these things attentively, noting them down, not only in paper, but in my heart, and by the grace of God, I recall them faithfully. This to me is fascinating. We have a very interesting chain of personal testimony and interactions, beginning with the Lord Jesus, who called the Apostle John to follow him, who mentored a man named Polycarp, and who in turn had an impact on Irenaeus, who died about the year 2000, Four men in history who passed the baton of the gospel from one to the other over a period of 200 years, the first 200 years of the history of the church. That is how historically credible all of this information is about John, about his latter years, and about his ministry in Ephesus. So, John was the diligent, entrepreneurial, outgoing son of the owner of a large fishing business in Galilee. He evidently represented his father's company in Judea and Jerusalem, even in the kitchen of the high priest of Israel. When he was about 20 years old, he became caught up in the revival of John the Baptist, and he was very responsive when Jesus of Nazareth came by, saying, follow me. He became in some ways our Lord's closest friend, the man to whom Jesus entrusted his mother, after the resurrection, he served the Lord in Jerusalem. At some point, he became the, the bishop of Ephesus, and it was there in his latter years that he wrote the Gospel of John and three letters that we find in the back of the Bible along with the book of Revelation. But let's end now where we began. John repeatedly referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John chapter 13, he wrote about the moment when Jesus told them that one of the disciples would betray him. Verse 22 says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know what he meant. But one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. John referred to himself there as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He did it a second time. And the incident that I referred to earlier in chapter 19 of John, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son, and to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. He referred to himself a third time, that way in chapter 20. 
It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. John referred to himself that way a fourth time and a fifth time in chapter 21. It says in verse 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Five times John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He did not say this out of arrogance, but out of humility. He didn't mean that Jesus loved him more than our Lord loved the other disciples. He never described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved more or better. He was simply aware, constantly aware, gloriously aware that Jesus loved him very much, and that defined his life. From the age of 19 or so when Jesus called him, to the age of 90 or so when this last surviving apostle passed away and arrived in heaven, John was simply aware, constantly and gloriously aware, that the most important description he could ever ascribe to himself was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, let me tell you something. John never trademarked that description. You can adopt it for yourself. What a difference it would make to our self-perception, to our self-image, if we always thought of ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's true. When you follow Jesus Christ, you become the disciple whom Jesus loves. You are the disciple whom Jesus loves. And that phrase should be the defining description of your life. There is none better. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Remember to check out 100 Bible Verses That Made America, and stay tuned next week and in the weeks to come for our ongoing study, First Impressions, from the first letter written by this man, John the Apostle. Today's episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing by our engineer, Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find that transcript of this episode along with many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.